0: So I'll invite you now to open up your pew Bibles. It's going to be page 1001 to the Gospel of Mark. Again, we're going to be pausing a little bit from Mark's series, Pastor Mark's series, and we're going to be picking up here in Mark chapter 6. And this is, again, something that I've been sort of mulling over for the past uh, several weeks and months. And so as we're turning there, I will start with a simple question for you. What do you think of when you think of God? What do you think of? Who comes to mind? You might say, who is God to you? I don't care to get too into the subjective part of this question. Um, but what do you think about Come, what, what comes to mind when you think of the Lord, the triune God of the universe? And I'm not just looking for a theological answer that would sound good to a theology professor in a classroom. I'm thinking of the answer not really in your mind so much as the answer that you may come up with in your heart. Perhaps it will take a little bit of thinking and self-reflection for you to come up with the answer The theologian A.W. Tozer famously said these words, which sort of makes me think of this question, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And of course, he is sort of asking this question, riffing on the question of the Lord Christ himself, which he asks to his disciples, and that's recorded in each of the Synoptic Gospels, who do you Say that I am? That is the single most important question any of us could be asked. And many of us have different understandings of God, understandings that are maybe more or less true. And so we're always on this journey of understanding God better, as we'll get into. So we all have these thoughts about God, but the question is are they true thoughts? There's a title of a book by a famous theologian named R.C. Sproul. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, it was one of the later books of his writing career before he died in, 20, I believe, 2018. But it's a book that the title has always stood out to me. The title is a simple one, but it's a good one. Everyone's a theologian. Everyone's a theologian. So we all have thoughts about God. The question is, are they true thoughts? And so in tonight's passage, we're going to be met with a striking depiction of the Lord's heart. And it may be for you, like it was for me, a beautiful contrast to sometimes how my heart thinks of God wrongly. It it stands in that contrast and it pulls me to see God differently than I would by nature choose to see him in my heart. And so as we read, before we read, we'll pray once again to ask the Lord to illuminate our reading by His Spirit. Let's do that. Our God, we thank You for Your Word, this self-revelation of Your very self to us. You've given us Yourself in these words, in these pages, so that we may know You, that we may be united to You through Christ, and therefore share in Your life as people who have been taken from the deadness of this world and made alive in Him. And so now, Lord, we pray for the light of Christ to shine through these pages and these words as we read them, and that we would, by Your Spirit, see and learn and grow. We pray this in His name and for His glory. Amen. Hear now the word of the living God from Mark 6:30 through 44 The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, "Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat." And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the end of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but back when I was in high school, I was one of those sort of kids that always felt misunderstood. Whether or not I was totally misunderstood is a different question. I think my parents did care for me and love me, and they were involved in my life very much. But perhaps it was my teenage angst that wanted to almost be misunderstood. I can remember wearing clothing that my older siblings, who I was in high school with, told me, Zach, you cannot wear that clothing at school. I will not allow it, particularly my older sister. She liked to dictate how I lived my life. If it was going to be an embarrassment to her, then it was not going to be allowed. And so being a younger sibling can be a little bit difficult. But I always knew that I I sort of am different than my siblings. I don't Typically fit in with them, though we got along fine, I just knew I was a bit different, and so it came as a really big surprise to me um, at the end of my freshman year that during the summer between freshman and sophomore year uh, when I came into touch or came into contact with a new friend um, who was this friend named Cameron, and we would become very quickly best friends, and we were best friends throughout high school and into college. Uh, Cameron confessed to me our very first time hanging out, but he thought he wasn't cool enough for me uh, he, he Him and I shared several classes together our freshman year, and I sort of knew who he was, and he knew who I was, but we weren't friends. We didn't talk much in between classes or anything like that, but this summer, between freshman and sophomore year, we met at a youth group outing of different youth groups that were doing something together, and so we actually became friends, and we hung out. It was a very memorable first time hanging out. Uh, We swam, and then Cameron got sick, Uh, and uh, it was a rough night after that, uh, but it was funny memories. But he told me before he got sick that night, I didn't think I'd ever become friends with you because you seemed too cool for me, a little too cocky for me, a little too conceited for me. And this was a strange experience because I was used to being uh, misunderstood, but not for those reasons. I didn't think I was very cool. I wasn't very popular. I wasn't uh, the the coolest kid around. Um, But it This ultimately kept us from becoming friends. Uh, For a year, Cameron said he wanted to be friends with me, but he didn't think we could be. And so because of his misunderstandings of who I was, uh, that prevented us from being in a relationship with one another as friends. And so after we did become friends, it took some time to sort of clarify the misconceptions and to explain that, no, Cameron, I feel weird, too. I feel out of place, too. I feel like there are plenty of people that I'm not cool enough to be friends with. And so you shouldn't think that of me. I'm, I'm okay with being friends with you. And that took some time for us to sort of work out as friends. But that misunderstanding prevented a true relationship because the truth is we interact with people based on who we think they are, not necessarily on who they truly are. We all have understandings of one another even in this room, and we will interact with one another in this room or in any environment based on who we think that person is is, not always on who they actually are. And so in some ways, we all have misunderstandings, even of those who are closest to us. Uh, I'm sure many of the married couples here who have been married for decades will know that you're still learning things about each other all these years later. Bailey and I are only married now for, we've only been married for three years, but we're still learning things about each other i 'm still learning how I can better communicate in order to be on the same page with her, uh, and so there 's little things that I feel like i 'm learning day by day in order to be a better husband for my wife, learning about how I can better take care of her and serve her needs. And so as finite creatures of what I would almost say is infinite complexity, that is what it is to be a human, this is just the way that relationships work. We can't ever fully understand someone. We're always unpacking more and more of who people are even those who are very, very close to us. And so the hope then is to live our lives in a way where we're steadily growing in our knowledge of those around us, especially those who are close, those who we're related to or married to. And so this is even more important than when it all comes to God. If humans are hard to really understand, it's even more uh, complex to understand this infinite God uh, who is uh, much more deep and profound than any human being on this earth. So when it comes to knowing God, one traditional way that Christians have talked about what it is to know God is to speak of knowing him as a pilgrimage. It's a journey always growing in our knowledge of the Lord. One of my favorite theology books, a systematic theology, is a book called The Pilgrim's Way or The Pilgrim Faith. Or There's different titles of the different editions of it. One of those editions is, is called The uh, Oh, excuse me, I'm forgetting it now, but it's about pilgrimage. It's about this idea of growing in our... I think it's called the Christian faith, uh, growing in our pilgrimage of God. Um, It's by Michael Horton, a great Reformed theologian. And he gets at that idea in that book that it's a journey, coming to behold the face of God more and more as we approach the heavenly city of communion with Christ. In his book... Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, addresses this point with this famous quote that has always rung in my mind, uh, for many, many years now at least. He says, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas, And so the truth is, then, we all have misunderstandings of God. We're always growing bit by bit and understanding who God is more fully. This is why we come to church. This is why we uh, continue to meet in fellowship with Christians. Maybe why we join Bible studies or read books or maybe you listen to podcasts. I don't know but we're always sort of moving forward in our knowledge of God. And we're always then also getting rid of our false understandings of who he is as well. We have to discard what is false about God as we cling to what is truly revealed in his word. And it's for this reason that a pastor named Dane Ortland, in his very good book called Gentle and Lowly, writes this. A Christian life, from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. So we're getting rid of what's false about God. That's part of that journey and picking up what is true. This is why the Apostle Paul constantly prays for his congregations that he's writing to, to grow in their knowledge and love for God. He always pushes those two things together. A good example is from Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul writes these words, praying that they would be strengthened or they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so for me, over the past few weeks and months, I've been grappling with the ways that I've come to have some faulty understandings of God. And in particular, I've come to realize that I will often, without recognizing it, operate with an understanding of God, that God is a tyrant. God is a mean headmaster always waiting to call me into his office to tell me how badly I've messed up. And I think God is holy, and so God must be constantly angry with me for my sin and for my brokenness. And so I'll think to myself, God just really doesn't get it. He's unable to feel the pain of what it is to be a fallen human being. And he's therefore a cold and callous god, remote from my pain of slow sanctification, and constantly annoyed with me for my mistakes, for my sins, for my failures or my faults. Now, don't misunderstand me. I I love Reformed theology, and Reformed theology teaches that God can sympathize. Uh, we can look at the, a verse from from Hebrews chapter four, a famous verse, which tells us. This great promise, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So I knew in my mind that this was true of God. I knew that God is able to sympathize, God can understand. Jesus has lived this life, He has been in my shoes but I couldn't help but feel still that God was somehow remote and that He was somehow just still waiting for me in judgment. And so I realized that my heart's knowledge of God was yet again in a different place than my mind's knowledge of God. I knew the right things theologically, but in my heart I've still held on to this view that God is just there to be upset with me always. Always. And so we can get into the passage tonight, and I think it will illuminate some of the heart of God for us, for his people, for sinners like me and like you. And so just a little bit of context of the story here. We sort of picked up halfway in the reading, but Jesus at the beginning of the gospel, or chapter 6 of Mark, has sent out his disciples on their mission to the neighboring cities around Nazareth to go and to preach the good news of the kingdom, to heal people, to cast out spirits and demons. Jesus has given them the authority to do this, and he sends them out in pairs, two by two, to go and do this. And so uh, this begins to be a successful mission, actually. People are hearing about Christ and uh, Great things are happening, and it becomes actually such a a momentous movement in the region that King Herod hears about it, Uh, and people are wondering whether or not uh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and so in the passage immediately preceding what we've just read, we see the story of how John the Baptist was beheaded, uh, because Mark is trying to fill in the gaps of the story there. And he tells us the story, of course, about how Mark was beheaded because of some political intrigue. Uh, And and so uh, Herod's wife's daughter uh, wanted John's head on a platter, and so he did it. But the context of the story is the disciples now coming back from this mission and they're reporting what has happened. They're reporting that good things have happened. And so they tell them what they taught and preached and what they did. And so Jesus calmly says, essentially, you guys need rest. Let's go and let's let's sort of retreat and let's get away so we can rest together uh, for what we've done. And so they take this retreat and they hop on their little boat and they begin to set sail across the Sea of Galilee. But again, their mission was successful. These people now know who these disciples are and where they're going, they want to be with them. And so as they see them getting off in the boat, they're able to run around the sea and meet them where they're about to land. And so you can just imagine these disciples arriving on the other side of the Sea of Galilee thinking, oh, I have to deal with you all over again. I've just been with you. I've poured my all all out for you. I'm trying to get away for some rest. And here you are uh, just continuing to demand things of me. That's what they may have all been thinking. But we're told for Christ, the response was quite different. We see this in verse 34, that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now we can pause and think about this, uh, what this context in, sort of entailed. These were people who were Jewish people uh, living north of Jerusalem, uh, but they were people that had been spiritually abused in many ways by, by their Pharisees who had failed them. Failed to be good shepherds, leading the people of God, teaching them the truth, teaching them about God's grace and mercy and kindness. When God introduces himself in the Old Testament, we can think of uh, the story of Exodus where he's introducing himself to Moses. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful and righteous and so that mercy identity of God often gets forgotten, and I think that that was the case here with the Pharisees. They were not leading the people well to know that merciful identity of God. And so Jesus sees them; he sees that they had been not they had not been led well. They were like sheep without a shepherd. These ones who maybe claimed to be their shepherds had failed them and failed them miserably. And so this word for for compassion, the Greek word is a really interesting word here. It's a word that's even hard to pronounce. And I think that that's intended in, in the Greek language to communicate. The word almost sounds the way it feels. And the word is splagniste. It almost sounds German. It's very aggressive, that term. splagniste, And it means that it has something to do with your bowels, actually. The literal translation is that there's sort of an aching pity that you feel in your gut. And so maybe you've felt that. You've seen someone who you take pity on. You have compassion. And you, you don't just think, oh, man, that must really be hard. But you feel it. You, you're right there with them. You feel the pain that they feel. And so you are moved. And that's what that word is all about, that deep feeling of compassion that moves you. And so, interestingly, this, this word that Jesus says, they are like sheep without a shepherd— This actually should begin to tip us off to some interesting echoes found in this passage with another passage Psalm 23. And I actually, I, I should confess that it was one of my friends in seminary who I heard expound on this passage a couple of years ago um, in a discussion he had with his friend. It was on a podcast, and he explained how he found these connections. And I've always loved um, reflecting on how Scripture does this, and so it'll be interesting. Maybe you think that this is a bit spurious. It's not Maybe you're unconvinced, but I want to convince you that Mark 6, the passage we've read, has a lot of echoes and connections to Psalm 23. So we might say that the first one is Jesus comes from verse 34 here, where Jesus says, They were like sheep without a shepherd. What are the very first words of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So we can count that as the first echo. The second echo, which really for me is sort of the one that really is convincing. In verse 39 of our passage, we're told by Mark that he, that is Jesus, commanded them all to sit down on green grass. In Psalm 23, it says, He makes me lie, lie down on, in green pastures. So, green. It's interesting that Mark notes the word green. Have you heard of red grass? Have you heard of blue grass? Maybe the music. Uh, Purple grass? No. Green grass? You don't think he really maybe even needs to mention it. Maybe it could be dead grass. Um, But it's green grass. It's sort of a a double word there, green grass. We sort of think of grass as being green. It seems that Mark is clearly pointing and making making an allusion to Psalm 23. The next one, they're gathered, think about the context, they're gathered on the hillside around the Sea of Galilee. uh, And the connection here is that he leads me beside still waters interestingly, the people were able to follow along the side of the Sea of Galilee, which is really a big lake, a large lake, but they were able to follow uh, the, the, the disciples in their boat. It makes me wonder if the, the water was, or the air, the wind was particularly still uh, that day. Uh, and so they're being led beside these still waters. The next echo, Jesus invites The disciples to rest. That's how the passage starts. And Psalm 23 says that he restores my soul. And then finally, from verse 43, we see at the end of the story that there's more than enough food. There's an abundance of food. He has taken the five loaves and the two fish, and he has fed the thousands of people, and he has uh, given them not just food, but more than enough food. There are baskets collected at the end. Psalm 23 mentions that you prepare a table before me, so you're going to feed me, you welcome me as a guest, and my cup overflows. There's an abundance here of the goodness of God given to his people. And so the message of the passage, I think, should be clear to us. What John's gospel says to us straightforwardly and directly when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, Mark's gospel is now showing us through the power of a story. A true story, but he's showing us, not so much just telling us. And so the question then for us is this, what does this mean for me today? What does this mean for us as we consider upon, uh, how we have maybe wrongly viewed God? I'm willing to guess that I'm not alone and sometimes thinking of God as, as a remote God who is only ever angry because I sin. There maybe is that overwhelming sense of guilt and fear of God, not the good kind of fear of God, but the constant nagging fear that God will reject you, that God must hate you, that God is not a good shepherd, but in fact like your mean principle from your childhood. This passage, I think, helps us to see that God sees us. Jesus steps out of this boat, sees these beleaguered people who for the disciples these are these this is just an annoyance and a frustration. They've spent so much time ministering to these people. Oh, we have to deal with you again. That is not how Jesus is. Notice God in this passage does not feel frustration. Oh, you again. You and your same problems. Again, No, he looks at them and feels deep pity, deep compassion for them. He sees you. He understands you. You are not misunderstood to God. He's not cold. He's not callous. But he knows the pain that you've endured. Even the pain that he knows you've caused for yourself. Last week at the evening service here, I... Uh, mentioned my friend Tyrese that I met in Stockton two Saturdays ago, and we talked for at most fifteen minutes, probably more like ten and As soon as Tyrese figured out what we were there for, um, he broke down in tears. I could smell all the while alcohol on his breath, and it was still morning. We left earlier that morning, so it had i 'm sure been a long night and even a long morning for Tyrese. He was very drunk, but even still he knew what he had done. And so he talked, and he confessed sin to me. Not anything in particular, but just said, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. I've done things that I, I really regret. I wish I could take back. And I don't feel like anyone will care for me. I don't feel like anyone will love me. And so it was a great opportunity to share with him, of course, the love of Christ. And and that is exactly what I did. I shared with him that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. You can repent. You can be freed. He talked about his mother and how his mother was always a strong Christian influence. But because of the ways he'd been living his life over the past few years, he was fearful to even give her a call. And I told him, Tyrese, I'm sure your mom would love to hear you. But as I was... Talking to Tyrese and thinking about it, of course, afterwards, I realized that I, I didn't sit there hating Tyrese. I didn't sit there thinking in my mind, You've done this to yourself. You didn't have to drink that alcohol. You didn't have to make all the decisions that led you to this place right now. I didn't sit there as the annoyed, frustrated one thinking I was better looking down on him. I was there looking at him as a human being who I knew that though he had caused a lot of his own pain. I knew that I had mercy for him. And that I, I hated what he had done to himself, not because I hated him. I didn't hate Tyrese. I hated it because I loved him. I, I wanted him to heal. I wanted him to find hope. And this made me realize, not this is isn't to toot my own horn or to make myself a hero at all, but it made me realize that I think this is maybe a little bit more how God views me. Yes, I am responsible for my sin. Absolutely, we are responsible. We make decisions that we should not make. We sin against God. We sin against others. But God does not hate you for your sin so much as he hates your sin because he loves you. He's upset about your sin. He's upset upset about what you've done. It is an offense to his character. But he hates your sin, not because he's constantly burning with anger and hatred and rage at you, but because he wants to unburden you from this disaster that you've created for yourself. God loves you. Jesus sees you. Jesus is moved with compassion for you. He sees you as maybe a sheep who needs a shepherd. And so deeper than his disappointment for you is his compassion for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray.